Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hello and welcome fellow time travellers. It's always great to have you with me as we travel through time and space together. God, it would be lonely otherwise. Thanks to everyone who signed up to my Patreon site. If you don't know about that idea, uh, here's a quick lowdown. Patreon's a subscription model, so by joining up and becoming a member, you help support the rest of my podcasts. You'll also get access to lots of extra rewards and exclusive content. Every week members see a new vodcast, which I film here at my home in Stirling. Um, We run occasional competitions, and from time to time we let members suggest topics for a special episode. So it's all going on. It's a community, growing all the time. To join, simply go to patreon.com and search for me by name, Neil Oliver, and sign up. Okay, it's time to strap ourselves into the time machine, people. We're off to witness lines being drawn and people divided for all time. In the next episode of my love letter to the world, recorder, microphone, action. And there was a story being told and retold, and it's still being told now. And out of that springs the rest of everything that has determined the lives of billions of people and still does today. A civilization powering forward across a vast landmass. An Aryan invasion lost in the mists of history. Or an era of great change and upheaval. The synthesis of ideas, gods, a way of life and a new religion. At its heart a sacred text, recited and remembered down through the ages. And the development of a unique system of social organisation. Growing, adapting and lasting for thousands of years. Endeavouring to understand history in order to try and illuminate the future, I'm Neil Oliver and this is my love letter to the world. Hi Neil. In the last episode we travelled to ancient Egypt and saw the finest chariots in the world unleashed in war. Which moment in history are we travelling to this week? Hi Paul, this week we're crossing the continents, uh, leaving behind the extraordinary all-powerful empire built by the Egyptians and heading east to the Indian subcontinent and an empire whose foundations would far outlive the influence of the pharaohs. The moment in history we're homing in on is a development which has affected the lives of billions of people for thousands of years, the caste system. 
we're back in uh, we're back in the subcontinent of India. For the few years now, I've I've become more and more interested in all things subcontinent. I've realised scandalously late in my life how much of significance was always going on in that elephant's ear of the world, um, and I feel I feel bad. I feel I feel really let I've let myself down badly, Paul. In that I have <laughs> that I went I went for so long, knowing so little about that place. I, I mean, it is an extraordinary place if you ever go there, isn't it? It's got something about it that grips you. I don't know. Have you well, been? Obviously, it's obviously gripped you. Have you been? Yeah, I, well, I tell you what. When I touched down, what are, you won't remember this, Neil, but years and years ago. You talked about touching down in an aeroplane in South Africa. Uh, you said to me, like, when I, when I landed there, I sort of felt like I'd been here before or I knew it or something. That's what I felt when I went to India. Right. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Well, you do wonder, you know, I mean, we're all mixed up genetically from folk movements for thousands of years. And, you know, I, I just sometimes wonder if little bits and pieces of our individual DNA are just twanged like banjo strings by certain encounters I, I don't know if there's just resonances you know you've got who knows what your makeup is yeah made of thousands of years of people coming together you just don't know and maybe there's something out of the out of the east out of this out of the subcontinent that resonates for you who knows i mean the th- i mean the thing is by by the middle of the first millennium before the birth of jesus christ so you know by 500 years bc a quarter of the world's population was in the Indian subcontinent. A quarter. So, you know, we've got this... In the West, you know, we've been invited to have this skewed... We touched on it last week or the week before about the Mercator projection, the map that, that everyone who went to school in in Britain grew up with, which gave you this completely uh, disproportionate idea about the scale and significance of Europe against the rest of the world. And, and, and so... We all grew up going to geography classes and, and all the rest of it, not really appreciating, well, I certainly didn't, that 500 years BC, whatever was happening in India was happening to one in every four people alive on the planet. The way the map was presented, the subcontinent was this little triangle tucked away, out of sight and out of mind. And yet for the longest time, whatever was happening there was happening to a quarter of the world's population. It's staggering, really. And part of my fascination with India and the subcontinent now is is the realisation that there's been some kind of gravity there, or gravity is as good a word as anything else, to describe the way in which it was holding in place everything that came anywhere near it. Like a kind of a black hole, but in in a benevolent sense. Anything that got pulled across that, that barrier, that boundary, that event horizon of, it, of its northern extent, which is the Hindu Kush and the Himalaya and the jungles of the, of the northeast, anything that got pulled through, anything that got pulled over, seemed to not properly escape again in that manner of, you know, a black hole pulls everything towards it, including light. And it's the strangest place in so many ways. The hunter-gatherer lifestyle that's in all of our DNA, that was true for all of us for, you know, for 90-odd percent of the lifetime of the human species. Well, that way of life survived in the Indian subcontinent down into the time of railway trains and cars and cities and all the rest of it. it there was still a place for that way of life on the subcontinent. Everything just seemed to be held there. And, and so that 
along with everything else, time was sort of warped. But it's got the longest history, really, a, a person might care to dream about. 8,000 years ago, there were farmers. On planet Earth, we've been farming, some of us have been farming for about maybe 10,000 years, and that the earliest of it's in the in the Fertile Crescent of the of the Near East, the Levant, you know, Mesopotamia, that, that part of the world, that's where the farming started, as far as we can tell. But by 8,000 years ago, there were people domesticating crops and husbanding animals in the north east and the northwest of of India between the river basins of the of the Indus and the Ganges 4000 years ago as we've said before there were cities Harappa Mohenjo-daro and and the rest where people were writing this is 4000 years ago there were people with the written word they had cities with homes and and other premises and properties laid out along long straight streets grid plans and they had plumbing they had fresh water coming into their homes so that they could bathe. By 4,000 years ago, bathing, ritual cleansing, as well as just practical bodily cleansing, was taken for granted in those cities. Then the the story keeps coming forward, obviously. By 3,000 years ago, so 1,000 years before the birth of Christ, the time of the the cities like Harappa and Mohenjo-daro seems to have, well, it was forgotten. The cities were gone. Culture had moved in another way, and that Harappan culture was lost. But something else was there, was present by that time. And at the heart of it is what is called the Rig Veda, which is the thousand hymns of praise and knowledge that are foundational to what became the Hindu faith. Now, the Rig Veda, like so much in the way of human knowledge, human wisdom, was only oral for an, an immeasurable period of time. So it was, it was the sort of thing that people learned by rote, committed to memory, and then in due course passed it on to the next generation. In the 14th century AD, the Rig Veda was actually written down for the first time. But by that time, for thousands upon thousands of years, it had been the stuff of recitation and memory. And it's bound up to, or it collides somewhere with the word Aryan. Now, Aryan is a word that's, I suppose you could only really reasonably say it's been tainted because of 19th century eugenics, which is all about seeking to perfect the human species by allowing desirable types to breed and undesirable types to not breed. And that was a a philosophy and and a science of the 19th century. And then, of course, in the 20th century, the concept of an Aryan presence on the planet was further corrupted by Hitler and his Nazis, their obsession with the superior race, the master race. But nonetheless, you can't really look into the, the subcontinent without contemplating what Aryan once meant. So at the time when the, the Rig Veda, the thousand hymns and, and poems and that, that work of literature, when the sounds of the Rig Veda were first echoing around the subcontinent, Aryan meant something different. It meant something like high-born or set-apart, exclusive, elite in some way. It's hard to discern. It, it, may, it may have implied a skin that was lighter, 
lighter rather than darker. There may have been a connotation about Arian that suggested lighter skin, but frankly by now it's almost impossible to be sure, and in any event it's difficult to talk about it without stumbling helplessly into controversies around ethnicity and race and racism and all the rest of it. But as far as we can tell, hundreds of years after the building of the cities and the rise of the civilization that was called Harappan by archaeologists and Indologists, which is to say specialists in the study of all things Indian, at a point when the cities were already in decline, there was, I sometimes think about it as being a disturbance in the force, <laughs> you know, in that this is a Star Wars universe. Think about a disturbance in the force, that around 2000 BC, that's just a figure really plucked out of the sky as being as useful as any other. A settled way of life with roots that were already thousands of years deep went into some kind of period of change. That's a a generalisation, but it's probably helpful to keep it general at the moment and and not try to be too specific about it because there are so many uncertainties heaped upon it. For a long time, uh, understanding of what was happening, that disturbance in the force, came came down through a German historian and Indologist called Max Muller. And he understood and then taught generations of students that there had been an invasion, that whoever were the indigenous people who by themselves had come up with the Harappan civilization of, of cities and straight streets and baths and all the rest of it, that they were invaded by people speaking the Aryan languages. Aryan is also descriptive of a family of languages. Aryan is bound up with the roots, say, of Iran. The Aryan people or the Aryan language or whatever may have come out of the territory that we understand as Iran, but (laughs) there's, there's no consensus about that either. But Max Muller, anyway, Let's allow for the fact that he understood from the archaeology and from the the Rig Veda that people had come into India from the north. They'd come in through the Hindu Kush and they flowed like a river of people for hundreds of years. And throughout the 19th century and the 20th century, many historians pictured it as a violent coming together of the oppressor Aryans and the victim indigenous population. And the idea was was further developed to suggest that the the incoming Aryan oppressors were lighter skinned than the darker skinned indigenous population. We've talked before in in another moment of significance in the story of the world about the arrival amongst the Egyptians of the Hyksos, the foreign kings. In terms of the Max Muller understanding, that would be the way to picture it. People coming in from outside and by technology and force of will dominating the people that they found sort of arrive like cuckoos in the nest amongst them. In the case of the subcontinent, these Aryans, if you follow the the sort of invasion colonising model, they were pastoralists, they were herders of sheep and goats. They came in on horseback, they had chariots, like the Hyksos. They had technologies and modes of transport that were alien to the people already in the subcontinent. 
In some ways, though, they were less sophisticated than the indigenous population. Those city-dwelling people with, with writing and all the rest of it. The incomers, lighter-skinned and more aggressive though they were, they seem to have been less sophisticated in some ways. In any event, it coincides with a collapse of city living and the forgetting of the written word for hundreds of years. That's why there's no written history of it. That yes, that's the disturbance in the force. That definitely happened. There was a there was a moving away from city living. There was a, a loss of of the written word, and Muller and others like him imagined that this was because of an invasion, that it caused a kind of a chaos lasting for hundreds of years. That Aryan invasion is also credited, if that's the right word, with bringing in the seeds of a religion, and that incoming religion was modified on contact with the people who were already living in that part of the world, and that modified hybrid form made all the difference. Those Aryans, if they were an invasion, along with their sheep and their chariots and everything else, they brought a pantheon of gods. And in their heads, committed to memory, they brought the thousand hymns of the Rig Veda. Okay, so that way of thinking, that cosmology is intrusive. It comes in from the outside. But in any event, it's still credit where credit's due. The Harappan people, who were the indigenous population, they affected and resulted in the modification of that incoming religion. And so it's the hybrid of all of that that is Hinduism. Now, just to make things even more complicated... Much more recently, ideas of like imperialism and, and colonisation have become unpopular because they have all sorts of negative connotations with them. And so there are lots of more recent indigenous Indian historians and Indologists who've suggested that there never was an invasion, that everything that happened in the subcontinent was local. It was all the product of the people already there. So those two ideas, an older idea of invasion and a more recent idea of indigenous thinking. They they sit uncomfortably side by side. There's also thinking that the the city living of Harappa and Mohenjo-Daro and the rest may have been compromised by climate change. That there may have been environmental factors that brought that way of life to an end. Maybe rivers dried up. Maybe there was less rainfall at the headwaters of the rivers so that the fields became less fertile and there was a desiccation of the landscape that put the cities under pressure and eventually the cities were abandoned. So rather than being invaded, there may have been environmental factors that just made the city living impossible. So at the forefront of that new way of, that more recent way of understanding India, is a an Indian historian called Braj Basi, B.B. Lal. B.B. Lal, he's known as. And he insisted that the change was all indigenous, all homegrown, and he's cast proper doubt on the on the very idea of pale invaders, you know, coming in and changing everything. He's just cast that out. But there isn't a consensus and there are still those that sort of adhere to the, the invasive model. And a lot of the a lot of the debate hangs around the, the hymns of praise and the stories that are in the Rig Veda. On the one hand, you've got the, the descendants of Muller's thinking, who say that the memories and, and everything that's in the, in the Rig Veda are nothing more than a mythology, fairy stories, folk tales. On the other hand, B.B. Lal and his adherents have looked at archaeology and 
They've even considered the DNA of the population of the subcontinent. And they say that it's just about continuous evolution of the indigenous population in the face of a changing environment and a changing climate. And to quote the Rig Veda, uh, the creation hymn specifically, A time is envisioned when the world was not, only a watery chaos, the dark indistinguishable sea, and a warm cosmic breath which could give an impetus to life. Who knows truly? Who will declare whence it arose, whence this creation? The gods are subsequent to the creation of this. Who then knows whence it has come into being? I like the fact that there's uncertainty even in the creation myth at the beginning of Rig Veda. Even the Rig Veda doesn't really claim to understand how it happened. And that might be a lesson for all of us, that in search of certainty, we might always be thwarted. Mentioned, and this is when it gets of interest to the archaeologists, within the Rig Veda there's, uh, there's constant mention of the Sarasvati River, which is described as the mother of floods and the greatest of rivers. So this, a great surging torrent of a river, something, you know, awe-inspiring to behold. Now there's been archaeological excavation of an ancient settlement in the Punjab called Birana, which showed that that settlement was established beside the Sarasvati River by 6,000 years BC. So 8,000 years ago there was a settlement by the Sarasvati River. And whatever developed there is regarded as a precursor to the Harappan cities. It's like an earlier, more primitive, more basic iteration, but still with aspirations. It was home to farmers. And it seems to be the case, though, that environmental change, and this has been established by archaeologists, saw to the disappearance of the river, and that the river had gone completely, gone completely, not a drop of moisture, by around 1500 BC. Now, if the hymns of the Rig Veda did not come into India until the time of the supposed invasion, why would there be so many verses in the Rig Veda, which for the longest time was just the stuff of memory, referring to the glorious and loudly roaring Sarasvati River. You know, a river in its ancient prime. So according to B.B. Lal and his adherents, the fact that there's the memory of this great torrent of a river woven through the Rig Veda from the beginning suggests to him that those hymns are much, much older and they're also homegrown, they're indigenous. They were composed by farmers who had been in India all along. Okay, so that's the way they interpret it. That the Sarasvati River wouldn't be flowing through the Rig Veda for thousands of years when, as far as we can tell, by, by maybe 1500 years BC it was gone and the and the Aryan invaders are only supposed to have arrived in India around that time, by which time that river would have been a dwindling shadow of its former self. That's just a single example. And so the debate goes on and on and on, which the, the, I love it. I love it when there's no consensus. I, I love it when the debate just has to go on and on. I find that refreshing, really. What is undeniable, I don't think anybody denies, is that but it's impossible to deny that what arose in India was the caste system, that differentiation of different classes of people. It puts the British class system, knocks it into a cocked hat in terms of its complexity. Now, the Rig Veda describes 
well, it, it, it's not really taking in the whole of the subcontinent. It's, it's really describing a territory between the Indus and the Ganges. And within it, there's a population divided into four, into four classes. There's a priestly class called Brahmin. There's a warrior class called Kshatriyas. There are peasant farmers called Vaishyas. And there are the Shudra, who are servants to all. The lowborn. Anyone born into the first three castes, which is to say the priests, the warriors, or the peasant farmers, they were taught the Vedas, the Rig Veda. They were entitled to, to, to learn that wisdom. The Shudra were not. They were excluded from it. They weren't deemed worthy. To this day, the people of the subcontinent argue about and have a go at each other on the basis of skin colour. Those with lighter skin tend to look down on those with darker skin. That has been a feature of the Indian subcontinent since, well, we can't get beyond the beginning of that. That's always been there. And to this day, there's a multi-million pound cosmetics industry that promises to turn dark skin light. It's there in the foreground, it's there in the background, this notion that pale skin is more desirable and that pale skin is proof of a higher caste so that the closer you are to the Brahmins, the paler you are. And this has always been painful. And there have been reformers who've come and gone who've sought to get beyond it. Some people say that it's founded anyway upon a misinterpretation of the Sanskrit, the language of the Vedas. And there's a, a, a word specifically which is Varna, which it either means colour or temperament, depending on how you choose to translate it into the modern languages, but there's no consensus. So it might be a dispute about differing colours or differing temperaments. And those are obviously two very different ideas. It's also interesting that to begin with, there was, a there was some flexibility in the earliest iteration of the caste system in that individuals within the four groups uh, could move, could move within them. Uh, you could kind of get up through the ranks, as it were. So you could start out low and end up high, depending on the path that your life took. Then, of course, with that freedom, there was generations of intermarriage between the groups. A warrior class would marry Brahmin class, a Shudra might marry a peasant, and so on and so on. The constant intermarriage meant that over centuries, they ended up with thousands of different castes called Jati. And over time, the divisions calcified and hardened. You had to live, marry and die in the caste into which you were born. And that understanding of caste has been the defining characteristic of life for millions, billions of Indians, right down to the present day. So, in terms of a story of the world in a hundred moments, this moment to be imagined, what fascinates me is that that first classification, that drawing of lines between four groups of people, between you know the Brahmins, who were students, who advised society, the Kshatriyas, who were the warriors who protected everyone, the Vaishyas, who were the farmers who provided the crops and the animals, and the Shudra, who served everyone else. That separation had to have occurred to someone at some moment. Obviously, it evolved and it became something that everybody understood and everyone in the Indian subcontinent accepts to this day, to a greater or lesser extent. 
But in the same way that I've often thought about the stone circles, let's say the ones in Orkney are, seem to be the oldest stone circles in Britain, that everyone else have caught that infection from the people in Orkney. So at some point, somebody on Orkney must have thought there's a way to understand the universe based on raising circles of standing stones. You know, the idea has to, it has to crystallise in somebody's brain first and then it spreads. And so likewise, the decision to separate society along those lines, it starts somewhere. So the moment in question is, you know, to whom <laughs> did it occur that society should divide into these classes and never the twain shall meet. The necessity of that crystallisation, that, that notion, that spark occurring in someone's head as a moment, I find endlessly fascinating. And this is, this is occurring to someone before writing, before it was even woven into the verses of the Rig Veda, it was there in somebody's head that society should divide along those lines. And then once that idea was out there, it spread. And so, so much of what then happened to millions and then billions of people in that part of the world, and by the middle of the first millennium BC, it was a quarter of the world's population was being run along these lines. And there was a story being told and retold, and it's still being told now, and it's about a creator, a creator deity, called Purusha, who's there at the beginning of it all. Purusha is just there. And Purusha, according to the story in the Rig Veda, gives up his body to the gods so that by his sacrifice, all people might be made. Everyone that there would ever be came from Purusha offering up his body. And to quote the Rig Veda, the Brahman was made from his mouth, the Kshatriya were made from his two arms, then his two thighs became the Vaishyas, and from his feet came the Shudra. And out of that springs the rest of everything that has determined the lives of billions of people on the Indian subcontinent, and still does today. An explosion the size of which the world had almost never seen before. A high life of modern glamour and sophistication lost. A place of empire and endeavour set by the sea for trade and commerce. Travellers, merchants and scholars whose alphabet stretches into history. Renowned architects and engineers of immense skill constructing an extraordinary building whose fame echoes around the world. Next time in my love letter to the world. To help support this podcast and to get access to new and exclusive history and comment vodcasts every week, sign up to my Neil Oliver Patreon site. I'd love to see you there. Check out the Instagram account called Neil Oliver Love Letter. My YouTube channel is simply called the Neil Oliver Channel. And to help build this podcast, please tell your friends about it, get them listening and write a review to convince the online crowd to join us. For further reading about these moments in time, you could try my book. It's called The Story of the World in 100 Moments, and it's published by Transworld. 
Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the World is produced by Neil Oliver and Paul Ratcliffe for Fat Belly Films. Music's composed by Milo McKinnon. Social media and YouTube producer is Oscar CFR. Additional research is by Evie, Lucy and Archie and Teddy. Finances by Catherine and Trudy. Post-production is by Althorpe Studios and the graphics are by Paul Plowman. Thanks for listening. This has been an FBF Podcasts production. Okay, I'm stopping the record. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.